I was uh, thinking in preparation to today as we want to pick up the second part of the message that we began last week, laying a foundation for this new ministry of reaching out in, in a very specific, intentional way to people who need rescued from their sin. I was, I was thinking about the things that, that people do and why would you do that? For example, I was thinking about the running of the bulls. Like, why would you do that? I mean, there's, there's just no real good reason that I think I would ever do that. I hate to say I would never do that, but I would never do that. There's been uh, 15 people killed since 1910, so the odds are pretty good, I guess. Um, regularly, people are gored and seriously injured. I think this guy is going to be a statistic. I wonder if, in, in about another two seconds, he's not going to be asking himself, why did I do this? I don't know. I, I was also thinking about people. I come from up north, and I've done a lot of ice fishing. It never, ever occurred to me, for example, to carve out the ice and to go swimming in ice water. I mean, what in the world is that all about? Why would anybody in their right mind want to jump in ice water and go swimming? Has anybody, before I say more derogatory things, <laughs> has anybody ever done that? One, two, okay. This is really healthy, and it's really good for your heart, and um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we're not going to have testimonies, but I personally think... Why would you do that? I was also thinking about, like, who... Uh, I, it's a little bit politically incorrect to go to circuses now, because I guess it's inhumane to animals. But I was thinking about who would grow up and be a lion tamer. Like, why would you do that? Whatever would possess you to say, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to get in a cage with lions and I'm going to help have them open their mouths and I'm going to stick my head inside their mouth. It's like, why would you do that? I, I just don't get that. And isn't it remarkable as we talk about addictive sin that, that people can engage in behaviors that they know are high risk, are likely to destroy them, they are more than likely to go wrong rather than well, and yet they still will pursue that end. I was thinking about Nancy Reagan's uh, um, uh, years ago in the 80s, I guess it was, or whenever it was, the, um, I believe it was Nancy Reagan that initiated an anti-drug initiative. They ratcheted up the level of education that was going on in our schools and they had an ad campaign that went something like this. I mean, it would come on. It was even a radio ad. It was a frying pan that was sizzling. Do you remember this? And then they would say, and I think it was a TV campaign, and, then, and they would say, this is, your, this is your brain. And then they would crack open an egg and drop it in the sizzling grease and say, this is your brain on drugs. And, and you know, you have to say to yourself, why would anybody do that? Why would you take that particular combination 
of chemicals and put it in your body and do that to yourself. And you know it's going to kill brain cells. I mean, I really like what little brain I have. I need to preserve it. I need to encourage it. I don't need to kill the cells. And you think to yourself, why would you fry your brain? Why would you enter into behavior that is so intentionally risky? And yet, people do it all the time, don't they? All the time. As we're looking at our notes, I begin with the question as we make a run into point two of our outline from last week. Last week was the destructive power, the deceptive power of sin. This week is the power of Christ and the gospel to, to challenge and transform that destructive behavior. But the question we begin with is this. Why do people do destructive, sinful behaviors even when they know the outcome will bring pain, suffering, and perhaps even death? Why do we do that? And so I was just thinking about that. What are some of the reasons that people enter into behavior patterns that end up so sinful and so destructive even when they know they're taking a risk to do that? And I was thinking, we're so vulnerable in so many ways. Well, I listed five that I wanted to click off. There are at least 50 that we could probably talk about. But here are five that I thought might uh, just set the table for part two of our message where we look at the power of the gospel and what is needed to transform our lives if we're stuck in sin. Number one is a reminder of the deceptive schemes of the devil to destroy God's plan. The deceptive schemes of the devil to destroy God's plan. One of the things we have to realize when we talk about sinful lifestyle or habit patterns of sin is that we are part of a greater problem. Uh, there, there's a greater problem. I need to take care of the coffee before I step on it. There's a greater problem that is going on. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? I mean, here you have what many Bible students believe to be the Garden of Eden outlined by the names of three different rivers. Likely, the geographical surface of the earth was transformed by Genesis chapter 6 in the cataclysmic flood. But before that, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve are still living in the garden, it is, it is probably literally millions of acres, thousands of square miles of utopia. And there's one tree in the middle of the garden that God says, don't touch it. He gave them a choice. And we have the serpent entering the scene, whispering in Eve's ear. He didn't whisper, come on, let's play some ping pong. Let's do some fun games here, a little Monopoly tonight, you know, after pizza. He came to do one thing. And we got to keep this straight in our thinking. As you look around, as you watch the news, as, or if you quit watching the news, it's overwhelming. You have to realize there is one overriding agenda that Satan has, and it is to destroy everything that is good, to destroy everything that is Christ-centered, to destroy everything that is part of God's plan. Satan has an agenda to destroy God's plan and God's world and all people everywhere created in the image of God. And what we see going on that is almost inexplicable as to the realities of what sin is doing to our culture, sin is doing to our community, sin is doing to our country, is nothing other than the ongoing 
degenerative work of Satan on God's plan. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says that Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. He's the deceiver of the whole world. He's out to deceive and to destroy. We must keep that straight in our minds. Why do people what they do what they do? Because Satan is deceiving and destroying and he has an incredible agenda at work. Sin is almost always not logical. It's almost always not logical to sin. It doesn't make sense to do these things. Number two, we have to recognize that we have a bent, a natural bent towards rebellion, towards rebellion and self-rule, which leads to disaster. You see, what so often happens, particularly in young people, but some people have a real hard time being stuck in their rebellious state, is the reality that they think they know better than everybody else. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 13, verse 13 real quick here. Proverbs 13, 13. It's right in the middle of your Bibles. Psalms, then Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom. And let's just look at a couple verses before we go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and understand what the gospel did in Corinth with wicked sinners. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 13. Look what it says. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. Why does somebody despise instruction? Because they're rebellious. Because they're arrogant. And because they think they know better. Our natural bent towards rebellion and self-rule, which leads to disaster. There's other verses there too as well, as there are many more in Scripture that bring evidence to this. Number three, our willingness to embrace negative, life-ruining relationships. Isn't it remarkable how often the gateway to sinful patterns in our lives began with inappropriate relationships at lots of different levels? Rod mentioned it in his testimony, didn't he? I was 15 years old. Thought I was cool. Hanging around guys that are older, playing sports. Didn't know it was actually a life-ruining relationship. Now, the Bible speaks pretty clearly about this as well. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 13, let your eyes go down to verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That's why young people, when your mom or your dad look at you, your grandma, you come in and they figure out that you're hanging around some boy girls, that you're, you're a girl and you're hanging around some boy and your mom or somebody figures it out and they say, hey, are you really sure? Oh, mom, he's great. He's cool. He's every, no, he's, an, he's terrible. He's, he's the worst thing that you could ever imagine. Mom, you don't know nothing. That's pretty true, young. Moms don't know anything. They, do. they got where they are by not knowing anything. I don't really mean that. Well, what do you have? You have the gateway to destructive behavior that is entered into through inappropriate destructive relationships. Now, I don't know how many times I've dealt with people who live lifestyles of sin and often it is identified with the people they hung around. Or they started hanging around. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, you don't have to turn there. It says this, it says, it says this, it says, good morals, now I have it, good morals are corrupted, corrupted by bad company. That's my paraphrase, I don't know why I blanked out and I know that verse very well. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. 
in, in King James. Evil company corrupts good manners. Thank you very much. The quizzers, I appreciate it a lot. <laughs> Evil company corrupts good morals or good manners. Who you hang with often has everything to do with a lifestyle of sin. Number four, the tendency to yield to physical and emotional cravings of the body, which lead to illogical, unwise, disgraceful, damaging decisions. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the reality that our physical body has to be reined in and controlled, or it will often lead us down a road of destructive behavior. There's all kinds of illustrations of this in Proverbs, talking about sexual drive. There's all kinds of illustrations around us of how the cravings or appetites of the physical body, if they are not controlled, will actually lead us into a downward cycle of destructive sin. Have you ever think about that? I'm talking about our physical body. I'm talking about the appetites and desires of the physical body. Now, our bodies are not evil. God created our bodies, we're created in the image of God, and our bodies are not evil, but in our unredeemed state, we're not yet perfect. We still live in a body, and I think I can get a testimony out of anybody in this room right now, that we still live in a body that can very easily desire things that are not good for us. So, it's relatively simple, but it is profoundly powerful. Yesterday morning was the men and boys breakfast. I got home after cutting wood and, and uh, Janet said, what'd you eat? I said, told her the menu, what we had, how much I enjoyed it. She said, did you eat any donuts? <laughs> I said, I did. She said, you what? I said, starting last Monday, I started in on no sugar through the week. I, I only eat sugar one day a week. I, I was on it for a while, was doing better, my pants were fitting better, was feeling better, and I need to drop 10, 15 more pounds, and I was like, if I just cut the sugar out every day except Sunday. She said, today's not Sunday. She said, tomorrow you can't eat sugar. Today is your sweet day. So I changed the rule on it a while back. It's, it was only Sundays, but then I started sundown on Saturday until midnight on Sunday. So, I thought that sounded really spiritual. That if you start something at sundown on the Sabbath, you know, so I'm often still working on my sermon on Saturday night, and so I think a bowl of ice cream only enhances uh, the, the productivity. Sundown on Saturday until midnight on Sunday. Sometimes I stay up until midnight on purpose just to eat another bowl of ice cream. That's just a little sweet tooth. That's just a little sweet tooth. Some of you absolutely know the tyrant that a sweet tooth can be. A craving of the appetite of the body. And multiply that with this ability that our bodies have to have glandular response so that our bodies begin to be trained to think that when I do a certain kind of chemical, when I do a certain kind of beverage, my body feels a certain way that your body actually can tell you that you should do that. Your body is actually telling you, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more. And your body is telling you something that is gonna destroy you. You see, there's a whole element to godliness 
It'll be talked about in RU. There's a whole element to godliness that is very unpopular in the church today. In the Christianity of the last 50 years, the dynamic of the necessity of living a disciplined life to become godly is lost, and it's almost always covered under legalism. Oh, that's legalism. I want to tell you something. You cannot live a godly life in Christ Jesus apart from living a disciplined life because you have to tell your body no if you're going to stop sinning or your body will lead you into sin. It's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beg of you, therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body, he was talking about our physical body, to present your body as a living sacrifice, as it were, spiritually speaking, sacrificed over to God for the transforming of your life, that you would know the will of God and that you would be renewed in your thinking. And so one of the things we have to pay attention to are the appetites of the body. Fifthly, the widely accepted, socially embraced disregard for the word and the wisdom of God. We've already kind of talked about that. The widely accepted, socially embraced disregard for the word and wisdom of God. We already talked in Proverbs 13, 13, for example, whoever despises the word. Listen, the wisdom of God and the word of God give a direction that is not socially acceptable. As you, the word of God gives direction to people. We live in a culture that celebrates things that are completely outside the parameters of the Word of God. In fact, our government budgets big money to build institutions and to pay for the medical fees of a lot of people to do things that are absolutely socially acceptable in our culture. All kinds of behaviors. We even have the social acceptability in pop culture, for example, in whatever era in which you live, where through music, for example, or movies, there is a celebration of lifestyle promoted in that music that is absolutely deadly and destructive. And if you speak out against it, you're like, it's just a song. Why is it acceptable to sing about something that's going to ruin your life? It's absolutely going to ruin your life. And you think it's cool? Yeah, go stick your head in a lion's mouth then. Go carve out the ice and jump in the lake. I don't care, man. I know where your thinking is. And so if you go up to somebody and said, but the word of God says, don't do that. They look at you cross-eyed like, who cares what the word of God says? In our culture, nobody cares about what the Bible says. That's why if you live in obedience to the word of God and you promote the word of God and you live out that you're like some kind of fundamentalist wacko job. Because our culture has completely embraced many things that are absolutely destructive and sinful and outside the word, the wisdom, and the will of God. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because of number one, because of Satan's agenda to absolutely undermine everything that is Christ-centered and everything that is godly in Christ Jesus. It's also because of this innate appeal to the unregenerate heart to love the things that are on the dark side. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. I remember my EMT instructor. I was taking some EMT training uh, to work in a wilderness camping program back when I was in college in Beckley. 
I was at the Mining Academy every Thursday night taking my EMT instruction. And we were talking about being on accident sites. Some of you police officers will be able to relate to this or EMTs in the audience. Our EMT instructor was telling us a story about being out on the interstate where there was a tractor trailer that had flipped over on a car and people were crushed and dead. And he had to get down on his belly and hands and knees and crawl underneath the tractor trailer and to get in. And he's in there working, trying to uh, get, get, get to the scene and get it under control and the police were stopping traffic. And then a lady speaks to him, says, what, who are, you know, what's going on? And he turns and there was a lady had gotten out of her car and crawled in. He said, what are you doing? He said, I, she said, I just wanted to see. She crawls underneath the tractor trailer so she can see the dead people. What is that all about? Well, it, it's all about a drive within us to often participate in the things that are absolutely destructive. So what's the cure? What are we going to do? How do we help people? We come up with some therapy plan? Going to process and figure out some way that we can make better decisions? It's all fine and good. I know what we should probably do is we need to educate more. How many of you think that the cyclical power of addictive sin that is so evident in our culture is because there's not enough education? And if ever there's an educated culture and an educated group of young people, it's today's young people, and they are driven into destructive, sinful lifestyle. Has very little to do with education, has a whole lot more to do with the condition of the heart. So part two of last week's message, the power of Christ. Notice what it says, the answer to the question, there must be freedom from this sin. There must be freedom from sin. Look what John 8, 34 through 36 say. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, this is John chapter 8, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. He has no permanent right to the household. He's a guest of the master He's eventually going to be kicked out. The Son, though, remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Ultimately, Jesus' point is, the freedom from the slavery and bondage of sin comes through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for our final minutes today, and it won't take us long to recognize exactly what the Apostle Paul did. How was it that the Apostle Paul shows up in Corinth to plant a church, to reach a city that was corrupt to the core. Corinth is almost indescribably broken and sinful as a city. Here comes the Apostle Paul to town. He's, got a, he's writing the Bible. He's got the prophets in his hand. He's writing the New Testament itself. He's a, he's a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He opens up a living room and starts a Bible study. He plants a church. In the church, later when he writes them back, he reminds them, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor their, the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's reminding them that sinful people who have sinful lifestyles, who've never been born again, do not enter the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about people who've committed one of these sins. He's talking about people whose lives are characterized by sinfulness and they don't care. Or they care and they're stuck. And then he says this wonderful line, verse 11, And such were some of you. This list of sin and this behaviors, many of which are addictive, and that make the body crave more and more and more of that destruction, you used to be this. But no more, because why? Three things. Number one, you've been washed. And number two, you've been sanctified. And number three, you've been justified. I think we're zeroing in on what it takes to break the pattern of the list of sin that was just given. And if we think back to chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul begins this letter by writing, When I came to you, I did not come to you with what? With the intellect of man. I did not come to you with some slick ability to talk. I did not come to you with a new therapy plan. See, this is the people that he invited to his Bible study. Adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, thieves, idolaters, embezzlers. These are the people that showed up at his Bible study in Corinth. He didn't give a therapy plan. He didn't sign them up for a hundred hours of counseling. He said, I did one thing. I did one thing. I preached Christ and Him crucified. That's it. And to the lost, he said, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18 I didn't come to you with eloquency of speech, he said. I came to you with, in all humility and showed you the power of Christ. And you were washed, sanctified, and justified. So let's look at that because what I'm seeing here is the Apostle Paul's plan for breaking sin addiction. Number one, we need regeneration. Letter A, we need regeneration to be washed. This is... New life in Christ. So here you are, stuck in your sin. What do you have to do? You've got to begin with a new beginning. You can't undo the past. You can't undo the past. You're not strong enough to retrain yourself. You need a new heart. You need a new mind. It's when Jesus looked at Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and he said, You must be born again. To be washed or regenerated is the born-again process of our salvation. It's coming to a place where you're sick of your sin and you recognize there's only one answer. It's what we sang about in our last hymn. It's when Jesus Christ comes and writes us down on the palm of His hand. When Jesus Christ identifies with our unrighteousness and takes it upon Himself and suffers on the cross for it and gives us His righteousness that we receive as a free gift by faith in what He's done through His shed blood on the cross. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Titus, let's put it this way. He reminded Titus in Titus 3, 5, it's right there in your notes. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not because we had such good stuff to offer. It's not because of our good righteous works. But he saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration. 
Regeneration is the moment you're born again. You come to the cross, and by faith, you admit your sinfulness. That's repentance. To repent of your sin is to, is to agree with God that your sin stinks. And you're willing to give it up. Repentance, by the way, and faith are, are completely linked together. You can't repent without faith in Christ. And once you repent, you will have faith in Christ. That's what turns you away from your sin. It's your faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And you admit your sinfulness. And you say something like this to God. God, I'm tired of my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. And I admit this to you. I repent of it. I forsake it. Make me your child. And immediately you're regenerated. It's an act of the Holy Spirit to wash you clean. That is what it means spiritually to be born again. Remember Nicodemus said to Jesus, how do I get born again? I get inside my mommy's, mommy's tomb, tummy, Woo! my mommy's tummy, and I'm reborn? No! It's an act of the Holy Spirit to give you, spiritually speaking, new life in Christ. This is your new life. Regeneration. Secondly, he says, but it doesn't stop there. But you've been sanctified. You were washed. That's regeneration. That's new life in Christ. An act of the Holy Spirit to make you brand new person. By the way, you could write down 2 Corinthians 5.17 next to letter A. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That's regeneration. Letter B, sanctification. To be made holy, this is new behavior in Christ. New behavior in Christ. you got to understand that sanctification has three parts to it. And when you look down here at this verse, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he said, but you were washed, that's regeneration, you were sanctified. He's talking about the first part of the reality of what it means to be sanctified. That's kind of a $5 church word. Here's what it means. First of all, it's, it has a positional sanctification. I think that's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. To be sanctified, by the way, simply means to be set apart from sin. When you were regenerated and born again, one of the things that God did was He separated you from your sin. He sanctified you. He separated you from your sin. He takes that sin and throws it on Christ. He separates it from you. Okay? In a minute, He's going to talk about justification. That's when He takes the righteousness of Christ and throws it on you. But when you're sanctified, He pulls your sin and throws it on Christ. And that is a once and for all act. You're bowing on your knee before Almighty God, admitting that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, and you're done with your sin. And he, he regenerates you by washing you, making you born again, and immediately He has positionally sanctified you once and for all. You are now separated from your sin. He pulls your sin away from you. Secondly, though, He talks about in the New Testament progressive sanctification, so, positional sanctification is to be made holy. It's to be made holy at salvation. This is a part of our new behavior. Particularly, number two, what we call progressive sanctification, okay, is living in the power of the Holy Spirit in daily victory. Living under the power of the Holy Spirit in daily victory. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will that you be sanctified. What does he mean? That you walk and live your Christian life becoming more and more separated from sin. This is not legalism. We ought to actually make decisions to not do certain things. 
Don't do that. Oh, Mom. Oh, Pastor Van. No, I'm telling you, if you're sanctified, you've got to back off. You've got to back away. What you begin to see in someone is dramatic changes in their behavior. Rod and Katie were testimonies of this. The things that they used to do, they don't do anymore because they are progressively growing in their sanctification. I mean, it even gets to the point where, so like if I get a phone call next week, this week, so he said, Pastor Van, I hate to tell you, but that guy, that big guy with the gray whiskers, chewing gum up on the platform, Rod Malat, I saw him down at the bar and he was sloppy drunk. I said, oh man, Rod, come on. I jump in my car, I go find Rod, I grab him by the throat and say, where are you at the bar? Thursday night, why? What's happening? So, man, Rod had a relapse? Now, I probably wouldn't believe it right up front. I say, are you sure? Are you sure you saw that guy? Are you sure that's the guy you saw? But it could happen, couldn't it? But as he grows in sanctification, it's more and more unbelievable that it would happen. What if I got the same phone call and it's Wayne McKenzie? Somebody said, they saw Wayne McKenzie down at the strip club drinking sloppy drunk out in the parking lot carousing. And I say to them, no, you didn't. You absolutely did not. Why? Because that guy is so far along in his sanctification. It's not that he wouldn't be capable of sin. It's not that he wouldn't be capable of succumbing to the weaknesses of the flesh. It is that Wayne McKenzie has been walking with Christ for so many years. He no longer even has an appetite to even look over that way when he drives by. There is nothing screaming inside of him to go do that. He has progressed in his sanctification. I have such a high level of trust in Rod now that we wouldn't have had 10 years ago. Why? Because he's progressing in his sanctification. And then finally there's positional sanctification. Uh, there's some um, ultimate sanctification. So progressive sanctification is living in the power of the Holy Spirit in daily victory over sin. Daily victory over sin. Ultimate sanctification, that's when we are made perfect in the presence of Christ when we die or at his return. So once and for all, if the trumpet sounds and we're snatched away, or if we die and we enter the presence of the Lord, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about the guy in the box up here in the casket out drinking anymore. The body is dead. And once and for all, and when he gets his new body, there will no longer be in our heavenly eternal state, in our new body, a desire to sin. It will be gone. That's ultimate sanctification. So there's positional, sin is removed from me. There's progressive, that's me growing in Christ on a day-to-day -day basis in victory over sin. And there's ultimate sanctification where I no longer will ever even be tempted to sin again. It's one of the reasons I quote Drew Gobranson on this all the time. When he looked at me some years ago and he said, I can't wait to go to heaven. What's up, Drew? Why can't you wait to go to heaven? I'm so tired of the sin. And he meant primarily having to live among the muck of the world every day. Imagine being in the presence of the Lord where there's no more sin ever, ever how wonderful. Thirdly, there's justification. Paul, in a way, almost went backwards here, but and we're almost done. Justification, the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. 
the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. This is my new standing in Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean? The righteousness of Christ credited to my account. Well, when I'm stuck in my sin, I'm identified by my own sinfulness. Think of it as being spiritually bankrupt. I absolutely am bankrupt spiritually and I'm just in my sinfulness. And then one day, God calls me and lures me to the cross. The gospel is entering my ears and I'm hearing it. I might be at RU, I might be in church, I might be witnessed to by a friend at work. And one day I end up at the cross and I admit my sinfulness and God gives me new birth. I'm born again, I'm regenerated. I'm sanctified, my sin is pulled away and thrown on Christ. But he doesn't stop there. When I am born again, I'm justified. This is also a legal decision in the mind of God. A spiritual, legal type decision. A judicial act, you might think of it. So I'm bankrupt, so I got a credit card. And my, I go and I stand in line at Walmart and I finally get to stick my thing in the machine and it never chirps and it doesn't register and the lady behind the register says, your credit card might not be any good, let me try over here. So she's doing it on her machine. So I can, I'm sorry, sir, this credit card is no good. What do you mean my credit card's no good? Actually, he, she gets a phone call from the front office from security looking at through one of those cameras. And that guy that just gave you the credit card, he's bankrupt. That credit card is no good. You can swipe that card for all you're worth. You are bankrupt, man. It's done. You're, you're broke. It's beyond broke. There's nothing there. And that's what's going to happen if you try to get to heaven on roller skates. You try to get to heaven on your own. You're going to swipe your credit card in front of God and he's just going to look at you and say, it won't do any good. You're bankrupt. Your sin has bankrupted you. So when we go to the cross and we're born again and we're sanctified, God makes a decision for us. Not only does he sanctify or separate me from my sin unto holiness, but he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he identifies it with me. That's unbelievable. In other words, he reaches out and he hands me the Jesus credit card that, that is unlimited credit. That all of the riches in Christ, all of the righteousnesses of Christ are on this credit card and you can swipe it and it's as though it were yours. So where you are bankrupt and you can't even buy a bag of dog food at Walmart, you got the credit card that will get you into heaven. When I go into the gym at SU to whip up on Shoopy and racquetball in my imagination, <laughs> I swipe it through that thing, right? You have the credit card, the Jesus credit card? You're justified. God at salvation declared you righteous and he credited to your account all of the righteousness of Christ. When you get to heaven, if there's a turnstile, you whip out the Jesus card. It'll let you in. Your credit card won't let you in. Jesus' credit card will let you in. All of his righteousnesses meet the holy standard of God so that you can enter into new life with him. That's what he's saying to the believer. You used to be fornicators. You used to be adulterers. You used to be drug addicts. You used to be drunkards. You used to be involved in every kind of sinfulness. And now you've been to the cross and you have been washed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit into new birth and new life, born again. You have been 
your sin has been pulled away from you and thrown on Christ. You've been separated from your sin unto holiness and the righteousness of Christ has been thrown back on you. You're justified. That is a therapy plan that works. That is the power of the gospel to transform lives. Let's fill in the conclusion blanks. Sin is an internal spiritual problem, external environmental or educational efforts to alter sinful behavior have limited immediate results and absolutely no eternal resolution. Limited immediate results and absolutely no eternal resolution. Sin is toxic. It's sticking your head in the lion's mouth. You think you can get away with it, but you can't. It's toxic. Number three, sinners can change. Sinners can change. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, praise God. Number four, the gospel is the change agent crediting to your account, your bankrupt account, all of the righteousness in Christ. You know, I look forward to the day of Friday night. People come walking through that foyer. They walk out to classroom C. They're welcomed with loving arms. They fellowship together. They pray together. They share their testimonies together. They share their problems and burdens together. They get counsel. They open the word and study the word together. They eat some Frito chips and drink Mountain Dew and they go home with a smile on their face because they've been washed and they've been sanctified and they've been justified and God is beginning a whole new work in their lives. Amen? That's the answer. It's not easy. It happens slowly. And Satan is eating our community for lunch. If the churches don't offer the gospel, what else is there in our community? What else is there, people? Some plan, government-funded rehab plan, it ain't going to work. Let's stand together and close in prayer. Right now is a great time for you to bow your head before God and accept the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. If you're not born again, right now, will you admit your sin and tell God, God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I admit my sinfulness. Make me a new creature in Christ. That's between you and God. Do it right now. Father, would you just challenge our church with the real truth that the gospel is the change agent? Would you forgive us for not being more boldly aggressive, spreading your truth and love around our community, the only hope that people really have? Would you take our you and use it beyond all expectation? Continue to bless Rod and Katie as they walk in obedience. And Nate and Jen as they lead the group. Ed and many others. We commit this RU ministry to you, Lord. We look forward to seeing what you're going to do as you transform lives through the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.